Welcome to Wisdom of Crowds. I'm your co-host, Shadi Hamid. We have a special episode for you all today. Well, technically, I guess all of our episodes are special, but still, this one was very good. And we hope you'll find it as fascinating as we did. Our guest is Greg Lukianoff, the CEO of FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. You might also know him as the co-author with Jonathan Haidt of the New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind, colon, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. So this is part of what we talk about, so-called cancel culture on campus. What does cancel culture actually mean? How bad is it? And we're not just talking here about people being mean to people on Twitter. We're talking about something more serious, speech codes on campus, professors being fired for having unorthodox views. I haven't been in college for a long while, so I found a lot of our discussion to be surprising and even shocking. It is worse than I thought, and it's also probably worse than Demir thought. We talk for about an hour and a half. It's divided into two parts, one for everyone and one for subscribers. If you're interested in listening to the full conversation, please consider subscribing for a few dollars a month. We'd love to have you. You can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. And without further ado, Greg Lukianoff. It was a very good piece. So um, and we'll get to, um, we'll get to, I actually found it quite surprising, even though I follow this stuff, not super closely, but I am part of the whole cancel culture, woke debate, um, chilling of public discourse. But even for someone who's aware of where things have gone, it's it's clearly worse than I thought. I mean, so I came out of um, reading your piece for Reason Magazine. And for all of you listening, you should jef- definitely check this out. Um, it's called The Second Great Age of Political Correctness. And it's a long piece, but I would say long in the best way possible in the sense that it really tries to definitively address a topic of controversy, which is how real is cancel culture. And we can also use other terms for that. I know some people don't like uh, the term cancel culture, but that in terms of, you know, measuring how many people have been on, on the receiving end of this chilling discourse in universities, it's actually, um, high and probably higher than than most people think. So I came out of reading the piece outrage. I was reading it yesterday and I was like, wait, is this really possible? How is this possible? And how are there people who still deny that this is a real yeah. problem? But maybe just to start, just uh, for those, for people who maybe don't know how bad it is, um, and if you want to sort of convey it to the lay, the lay person, um, you know, maybe we can start with that. Sure. Oh, well, um, one of the things that, that had been frustrating me was uh, 2020 was the worst year for free speech and academic freedom I'd seen in my 20-year career. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to start doing is there was so many attempts to get professors um, canceled, you know, uh, in, for lack of a better term. Oh, and I, I want to talk about terminology at one point, by the way. Um, but the um, – yep. uh, that uh, – 
now that I have like an actual sort of research department under me, I, and I say that that way because, you know, I wrote Coddling the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt. And prior to pretty recently, I essentially was the research department. <laughs> but I, so I now have like proper uh, proper social scientists working, um, working with me at, in that department. So we could start doing things like keep track of the number of attempts to get professors fired. Um, and in 2020, we had 120 plus um, attempts to get professors fired. And I say plus because I think I said 120 in the Reason article, but we have uh, we are constantly updating our data. So whereas it said 476 attempts since um, uh, 2015 in the piece, uh, we've updated that now, including cases that just happened since we we handed that piece in, we're already up to 505. And to be clear, these wow. are just professors. We're not talking about student cases. And I was absolutely blown away that after giving so many compelling examples of professors getting in trouble for, you know, for what they said on campus, um, that you still would have, you know, um, Adam Gurry saying in the um, in the New York Times to Michelle Goldberg, and, I, I, and to be clear, I really like Michelle Goldberg, but um, saying that uh, at any other for any other problem in the U.S., uh, something happening this not frequently uh, would be considered a problem that was essentially solved. And I was like, that's insane. Like that, that, that mm. basically, like if you're going to make an argument like that, what, what you really should have said is, I don't actually know very much about this topic um, because, it, it, and, I, and I mean that sincerely, I'm not trying to be snotty, because 27 tenured professors, tenured professors uh, have been fired for writing research pedagogy, things that, that the only thing that you're never supposed to be able to be fired for when you have tenure are your writing research pedagogy. And seeing any of them previously in my career was a big deal. Seeing more than two dozen in the past couple of years is nuts. And again, we're not talking about professors. We're uh, sorry, we're not talking about students. We're not talking about staff. We're talking about just professors. And so one thing that has been interesting is that there has been some greater awareness of the, the attempts to get professors uh, punished in, in, in the last year, um, including, uh, you know, Doreen Abbott being disinvited from his speech at MIT. He, he's an astrophysicist. He was invited to MIT to talk about how we were almost certainly undercounting the number of exoplanets out there. Absolutely awesome nerd stuff. And he was disinvited um, by students and, and faculty members making the argument that because Dorian had written this article that was critical of d diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and it was a very mainstream argument. He, he was he really make, defending the idea that people should be hired uh, on the basis of merit, uh, arguments that you know essentially most, most Americans actually agree with. So it wasn't like it was a crazy out there opinion that he got in trouble for, but he was disinvited for it. And this made a real impression on people. People, partially due to the good work of the uh, relatively new Academic Freedom Alliance, Robbie George's and Keith Whittington's group. Um, and I give great credit to them for bringing greater attention to this case. But the thing that was shocking to me was that's like another Thursday at fire. We, we, we are used to this kind of stuff happening all the time and at technical schools um, that uh, realizing that there are people who have not heard of these uh, these kind of incidents so much that they are rightfully outraged um, and how much more outraged I think they would be if they understood how common this stuff was in the place where it should never happen at all. Yeah. And, it, and it's worth noting that you are not a, a culture warrior, Greg. You're not like you're someone who was it's your job to actually objectively assess the numbers and look at the statistics 
I mean, your organization um, is called the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and that's what you guys focus on. And I think that helps because, you know, people can say, oh, Shadi's going on about wokeness or cancel culture again. Um, like, why is he so obsessed with this? Like, he's just into this culture, this culture war stuff. But I think what's so helpful about your piece is that you're not actually, and we'll get we'll get to this later that you're also you're also looking at when conservatives attack oh sure free speech and you you guys are explicitly nonpartisan and you do make an effort to call out whoever it is no matter what their ideological affiliation is so um and that's important that what one thing that really you know struck me um well part of the issue too is that universities have become much more ideologically homogenous in the yes. last 30 years. And what I like about your piece is that, you know, you remind us that there was a PC scare in the 1990s and there were all these articles and discussions about political correctness on campus. People started making fun of all that stuff and then it seemed to be solved. It stopped gaining traction. But then when we when we stopped paying attention, over 20 years or so, these these speech restricting ideas were gaining traction and not getting a lot of attention. And then it almost seems out of nowhere in 2015, 2016, we see a very significant increase in the number of cases and a lot of people are caught off guard. And, you know, part, can you maybe, t how, what exactly happened in the 1990s and 2000s? I mean, for some of us, we were focused. I was in college in the early 2000s, and I don't really remember there being a big emphasis on things like trigger warnings or microaggressions. And that's why for me, even as a relatively young person, I became very surprised when I saw students, the generation after me, becoming obsessed with some of these concepts. And I'm like, we didn't really, I mean, maybe we were just yeah. focused on 9-11 because you know, my, I started undergrad two weeks before 9-11 happened. That defines my, my sort of college experience. And when you're facing something as world historical and, and even seemingly existential as that, maybe you focus less on microaggressions. That could be part of it, but maybe just mm -hmm. like, well, when did this really happen and how did it happen without us realizing it? Sure. Well, yeah, I can give a, a really t tight history. But one thing that you, sh you should know, Shadi, is that um, I started at FIRE um, uh, in 2001. And my uh, trip out to, uh, to to find an apartment in Philadelphia, I was living at San, in San Francisco just a year out of law school, um, was uh, I landed at 9, 10 a.m. on 9-11. So all of my first cases were defending um, people who who said uh, said things on all sides of the political fence that were considered offensive about 9/11, including um, Samuel Arian at U University yeah. of South Florida when it came out that in '89 he had said death to Israel in a recording, but also professors who cracked a joke about anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. Um, this was a professor at University of New Mexico, so all of my initial cases were about um, you know uh, people saying insensitive things from both directions um, uh, after. After 9/11, uh, Greg, so can, I, just, can I just jump in oh, there? Sure. Just real Absolutely. question about that because I'm I'm not a, I'm not even aware of that. So people making cracks about 9/11 were persecuted in schools back then? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Interesting. And and this is what I mean by, it, it's kind of funny, 
because for people who know my work, when um, uh, we we said that these issues went underground, um, they didn't go underground to us. There were still uh, consistent threats to campus free speech my entire career. And my career started in 2001. I say this all the time that even in 2001, I was shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for for what you um, for what you say on campus. Um, but that uh, everything got much worse around 2014, 2015. So just to go real quick through, through the history. So campus free speech movement, uh, 1964, um, those fr free speech rights being very well protected by the Supreme Court being recognized in about the mid-1970s. And already by about 1980, you have people, including Richard Delgado and Mary Matsuda, uh, the same people who were, were, the, uh, were there for the founding, essentially, of what's called now called, uh, what we actually called at the time, for that matter, critical race theory, started advocating for um, enlightened censorship, that essentially uh, we're going to pass codes that um, will prevent students from being critical of affirmative action, from being offensive or sexist, uh, racist or sexist language. Now, you don't have to be a First Amendment person to know that it never is going to work out like that. Um, whoever's in charge of the code is going to use the code however they want to use the code. And usually they're going to police things that the, uh, the people in power don't like. So it wasn't any surprise to us that in 1989, you started having some of the first people who were brought up on charges at, at University of Michigan, which had one of the first speech codes of, of the modern era. Era, um, were, were black students who were said to have said anti-white things. And this is very, very predictable outcomes. So the whole country looked at what was going on on campus. And as long as you were off campus, uh, whether you're left or right, or, you know, and that goes for publications as well, people thought what was happening was outrageous and a betrayal of what campuses were supposed to be by clamping down on speech. So these codes all got defeated um, uh, by 1995, or so we thought. Um, and the uh, professors and students stopped feeling, you know, like that, that enlightened censorship was such a great idea. Um, so given that that PC had become a joke by 1995, I, I referenced the the Jeremy Piven movie PCU to show that it's, you know, if it's gone that far, that's even a mainstream movie, um, you know, your, your moment has passed. But yeah. because professors and students stopped being hot and heavy about th this um, and be because the media kind of thought this was all done with, they took their eye off the ball. And during those 20 years, um, what's amazing is that by the time we started doing the research um, in an intensive way at FIRE, when we got big enough to be able to do really rigorous research on speech codes, we found that around 79, 75% of, of campuses that we surveyed, and that, this is about 300, 400 schools, depending on the year, uh, and we rate them by top schools, you know, U.S. News and World Report schools, about you know 75% of them had what we call red light speech codes. And just to give you an example of what a red light speech code is, uh, there was a ban at Drexel University um, that was a ban on inappropriately directed laughter. Um, there was a ban at uh, <laughs> Johns Hopkins. Yeah, exactly. At Johns Hopkins <laughs> University that just had a blanket ban on disrespectful speech, which is just like that's insanely broad and, and, and vague. And fire, you know, when people weren't really paying attention, were constantly being like, you know, speech codes, believe it or not, actually increased after they should have all died at, at, at a, de a decent death. But were these actually enforced or were these just things that were on the book, but no one took them seriously? Also, I should know my dad is a professor at 
Drexel University. So I'll have to oh, ask funny. him if he was aware of any of this. Yeah, yeah I, I, I won't, he might have been because we definitely got a little bit of media on that. They were sometimes enforced. Um, I think that they're always harmful because they always because just by seeing them on the books, you're aware of the fact you, you're getting a miseducation about the First Amendment, about free, freedom of speech, uh, because you you come to believe that campuses can ban um, it, uh, inappropriately directed laughter, for example, or speech that in the uh, there, there was at Northeastern University. It was something like the, in the sole discretion of the university is offensive, which is like that's not really a, a, a protection um, at all. So sometimes they were used. Um, sometimes you'd have students punished at a university that had a crazy speech code, but they make no direct reference to the speech code because they just kind of assumed that they could uh, they could punish huh. kind of whoever they like for whatever uh, whatever opinion. So it was during this period um, from about. Uh, 1995 to about 2014, that students were actually great on free speech. That, that went, for most of my career, students got offensive comedy, they got offensive authors, they they had each other's back. Generally, when professors um, uh, were getting were clamping down on speech, when, and when professors were getting in trouble, heartbreakingly, a lot of times their colleagues wouldn't you know, defend them, uh, but students actually would. And that's why it was so distressing to see in 2014 um, this sudden movement of students coming up who wanted, uh, you know, speech codes, they wanted uh, disinvitations, they wanted trigger warnings, which I'd never previously heard of, of before, microaggression policies, um, all, all of these things that had never been popular among students were suddenly very popular in 2014 in a very with a very rapid discontinuity. And this strangeness is was the whole point of, of my book with Jonathan Haidt, Coddling of the American Mind. What was so different about those students who were who were hitting just then? But just to to focus a little bit on what I call the ignored years, that was the the, the period um, when there was good attention on what was going on on campus. Uh, there were a lot of people uh, writing critical books about it, including people like Charlie Sykes, um, Dinesh D'Souza, not, not, not a big fan there, but also people <laughs> like Jonathan Rausch. Um, and, and um, of course, uh, Alan Charles Kors, who's one of the founders of FIRE, wrote a book uh, with Harvey Silverglade talking about this stuff. And there were a lot of people who came up and said, no, no, nothing. There's no problem here. There's no problem with activism on campus being taught. There's no problem with viewpoint diversity. And as for, as for the information that people had available, at the time, it didn't look like it was that big of a problem. Uh, but amazingly, the, one of the things that I learned from, from writing um, with Height was that just after the, the argument had largely ended in 95, the viewpoint diversity uh, across the country just plummeted. It used to be about two, two to one conservative to liberal. Uh, the number now, I think, in the Northeast is something like 15 to 1. Um, I mean, there are departments where there are literally no conservatives whatsoever. And this is important because last time this happened, people said there was— Anthropology. Yeah, exactly. 32, I, think, I think for history, it's like 32 to 1. Um, that, that there's nothing to see here. There's, there's nothing wrong. There'll never be activism. There'll never be uh, clamping down on speech. And given, you know, how right people like Charlie Sykes were proven 20 years later, we should really take the lessons of last time that essentially you can't just say, well, thank goodness that's over and move on with your lives until there's more serious uh, reflection and reform. Well, so, Greg, you know, the the thing I, 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 I share Shadi's outrage. I mean, we were texting a little bit before this is that, you know, I mean, I, I uh Reading stuff like this makes me very angry, and it's, it's. I tried to be so calm writing it, <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's it's funny because this is part of the reason why I I personally try and, and stay away from this topic because it, it just makes me kind of irrationally angry in ways that 
you know, I'll try and sort of keep in check during this uh, during this conversation. But it's more rationally angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just I, it's so. Look, the thing maybe the the thing that's that's striking about the piece to me because I I'm a little older than Shadi, so I came up in the '90s, um, and me you too. know, and I was I was. Also, what's striking to me is, I mean, I, I fell into a group of people. We were sort of into punk rock and all the sort of really transgressive art and stuff like yep. that. And, then, you know, stuff was going on, I guess, on campus. There were, you know, more activisty people. But some of them also, you know, came to our shows. And it was just sort of this weird, like, woolly community. So I, I remember, uh, what was the, the, the school? It was even parodied on Saturday Night Live because they had had some sort of... Um, sexual uh, you're, permission. You're t- thinking about the Antioch Code. The Antioch Code, that's right. And so I remember that was a, a, a high point when that was sort of being, you know, mocked already at that point, you know, even in the popular culture. I mean, those are just sort of things I remember. Going back through your, your uh, you know, the, the tallies of sort of conservative and liberal professors, uh, I going, trying to remember some of my professors in the, in the 90s, I, I struggled to imagine, I mean, one or two I would know were properly liberal, but they were just professors and they were teaching me stuff in a lot of ways. I had no idea what kind of politics they had. And so what's what struck me in this is, is um, just in your reply to Shadi now, you mentioned activism being taught, uh, you know, in schools. I feel like that wasn't there for me. I didn't, I wasn't being inculcated with an ethos of activism, with this kind of non-reflective quest for whatever justice is. That That wasn't there when I was in school. And I don't know if if it was the the classes, and I went to Johns Hopkins actually uh, mm-hmm. in Baltimore. Um, so you know, one thing that I I, I note in your piece is is that uh, a lot of this stuff ends up coming through uh, administrators. Also, yeah. that it's not so much that it comes through uh, what professors want, but that there's a kind of activist mentality that seeps through the curricula of uh, education schools and of yeah. people that actually become administrators. So I don't know, maybe like, where does that come from exactly? I mean, again, just walk us through that a little bit, because that's interesting to me. Yeah. And and so the, the book, uh, Coddling American Mind, came out in 2018. Um, and one of the things I've learned since since then, and I've been up- updating um, the book in my own short series called um, Catching Up With Coddling. Um, and now I'm actually, <laughs> Height and I went to write an afterward to catch the world up on like what happened since 2018. And of course, we ended up with a 50-page afterward, which was impractical. <laughs> so we've, we've, we've been doing it in chunks at, um, even longer chunks at, at, at persuasion, um, which is, which has been fun. And one of the things I learned while researching, um, for the, for the follow-up pieces and something I hadn't really fully appreciated was I knew that something had really changed among, um, uh, uh, at education schools. And I can talk a little bit more about like how I knew that. Um, and that the K through 12, um, the teachers who were hitting K through 12 were more, uh, politically activist, um, starting about, you know, uh, 20 years ago. Um, but the thing that I didn't appreciate was how, uh, Though a lot of those teachers, a lot of people from education schools and the 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 various you know what are sometimes just called the studies departments, um, how disproportionately influential those those graduates were on the and creating the administrative class at universities, and so that wasn't something that I I, I understood, and it was actually reading a, um, a an article in the Chronicle Higher Education that explained that to me, and what's and what's interesting here, um, you know, in particular was how just being on the front lines of this stuff really 
set, set us up to understand what was going on better than, than most and to be on the front lines when people weren't paying a lot of attention to, to free speech on campus. So in 2005, um, my organization helped fight against um, uh, a standard by the accrediting body of most education schools that required schools that were accredited by, um, by NCATE, is its name, um, to demonstrate, uh, to have their students demonstrate their quote unquote commitment to social justice. And meanwhile, we were like, um, that's obviously a political litmus test. You should not be evaluating people on their commitment to any particular cause, um, however you define it. Um, that's that's crazy. That's that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And we managed to get it uh, stricken um, from the from the NK standards. The problem is, if you already have an institution that is sufficiently politically homogenous, that someone trying to pass something that is so clearly a political litmus test doesn't produce serious like cries of, hey, hey, that's not what we're supposed to be doing here. It's already a pretty, mm -hmm. pretty serious problem. And mm -hmm. we actually never defeated um, the, the version of this that they had at Teachers College. So you have a more um, activist kind of class graduating um, from higher, uh, from education schools. So, so the feedback loop, I think, looks like this. <laughs> That essentially, this was going on um, during the 90s, and some of the most activist you know, departments are include include education, social work, that kind of stuff. Um, and they start hitting K through 12. And uh, one of the things that I, I really think we we didn't fully appreciate how much influence it had was we we talk a lot about in coddling of how cell phones you know made a big difference, and and had this being the first generation of young people who had social media in their pockets since they were young and how much that changed things. But we also, I think we should have paid more attention to the 2010 cyberbullying scare um, that included uh, the, the suicide of Phoebe Prince, which um, Emily Bazelon wrote a great book that explained how that wasn't really a, a simple story of good versus evil bully side, that there was also the suicide of Tyler Clementi, um, a, uh, a young gay student at Rutgers who killed himself after his roommate videotaped him having a same-sex encounter um, uh, in, their, in their dorm room. Now, I, the only reason why I laughed is because that's illegal and should be illegal um, to, to, to spy on people like that in the state of New Jersey. And so that getting kind of oversimplified into another story about bullying, particularly one that should be applied to the K through 12 context, already was somewhat questionable. But because you had this sense that, there, that we were forcing this grave moral danger, schools across uh, states across the country passed uh, really sweeping anti-bullying legislation that included uh, classroom in instruction on how to, how to stop bullying. And a lot of those very same companies evolve more into, into diversity and inclusion work. So I think that one of the reasons why uh, there was such a marked difference in the students who were hitting campus around 2013-2014 was partially because they'd, they'd come up um, with this very, and, and in some ways, very commendable idea that, um, you know, as we call it in, in the book, um, the great untruth number three, which is uh, that life is a battle between good people and evil people, um, which is, you know, an appropriate thing to if you're going on a, on a moral crusade, but a difficult thing to square when you're supposed to be in this environment where uh, you're supposed to not have your mind made up. You're supposed to be opening up your, your mind to what the world looks like. So I think that the anti-bullying movement of 2010 and the um, more radicalized cohort of K-12 educators uh, played a bigger role in this than we originally thought. So I might be a little bit naive, so bear with me. I get that the intentions 
were were somewhat pure. Certainly, these people thought they were doing good, um, right? And they want to, you know, make make the world a better place and help people and all that. Fine, I get that. What I have a little bit more trouble understanding is that fast forward three or four years, and they actually see how these speech codes are being used in in ridiculous situations. Things were obviously. Um, you know, someone, someone wasn't actually uh, being a fascist. They were mocking fascism. There's a, there's this incident that you mentioned where someone does a mock Hitler salute, but, and that was an out of context. It seems like such an outrage, but in context, he's actually, and, you know, obviously as most people are anti Hitler. Um, <laughs> so, but, but there's, and there's so many other examples where the infraction the infraction seems so minor, so misunderstood. Someone is making a joke and it's just kind of distorted for what are obviously political or partisan reasons. I don't understand. So people so people who think speech codes are good, they mm-hmm. look at how they've been misused, such as these incidents. How would they respond to you? What do they say? Because this seems indefensible to me. How do they actually defend the fact that dozens of professors have been have been forced to retire or been fired despite having tenure, which is such a, a fundamental violation of academic freedom of speech, which is the bedrock in theory of of the university system? Like what? Just so we try to give them the benefit of a doubt do they have an argument or do they or do they just ignore it and say oh cancel culture isn't real look at these people who are exaggerating because i sometimes wonder are they actually arguing back in in good Mm -hmm. faith or do they respond to our criticisms in bad faith and just ignore them well, and I want to tell, tell the, the Hitler salute uh, story real quick. So um, this was funny because in the same article I was talking about, Michelle Goldberg talks about um, the chair, uh, the, the the Sandra Oh awesome series yeah, very on good Netflix. Show. And that and that surrounds um, w- one of the main characters. He's talking about, I think, Heidegger or the relationship between postmodernism and, and, and fascism. And he jokingly kind of like gives the salute when he mentions Heidegger, I think, because who was a Nazi? Um, and that gets videotaped and put up on the Internet as if this guy was like advocating for Nazism. Um, and it, M- M- Michelle Goldberg in this article says, well, I don't think anything like that silly w- would happen. Um, it's like. This is where I live. And not only did something like that happen, basically the exact same thing happened like a year ago at Penn where and this was a professor who thought the other person was acting was, was acting not like necessarily like a fashion, but acting way too uptight and way too authoritarian. So he's like, whatever, you know, see Kyle, man, you know, um, and that gets uh, placed into an argument. As if he was he was some, suddenly advocating for Hitler. So there's a number of things going on um, that make these this actually a, a surprisingly normal part of collegiate experience, um, particularly at elite schools these days. One is the argument that is completely dysfunctional, and it's something we talk about in in coddling the American mind. Is this idea that intent doesn't matter? All that matters is results. So if you feel offended, that's a harm by itself, and the 
fact that you you had good intentions or just kidding uh, is considered to be sort of like a blasphemous argument to make that essentially who cares it, it was it was hurtful. So a lot of the sort of like rules of engagement on campus that have been uh, slowly progressing towards this dysfunctional stage are so well entrenched that saying, Oh, come on, like, get over it. That's crazy. Nobody should have been offended is considered a, a, a irrelevant and insensitive argument to begin with. I do think that there is a large degree to which, though, that the same sort of institutions that created um, a lot of these norms and, and, and inculcated a lot of these students in, in, in these norms does feel like they've lost control uh, of the of where it's where it's headed and they are frankly scared of getting dragged um locally uh getting dragged on campus but also getting dragged on social media um there's a great deal of cowardice <laughs> at the same time on campus that enables this and there and you don't need every you know administrator to be an activist you just have to have one who really means it um, in order to make a, a really dysfunctional problem and a lot of cowardice to stand up for it. So I do think that um, some of this, some of the um, assumptions, like that, like like uh, only offense matters, is how you end up with the case, like we saw at um, Yale, which is another case that got a lot of attention um, this year. Uh, uh, and even though it's just a relatively run of the mill case, as far as we're concerned, at fire. But this is a a um, gay Native American student. Um, part of his uh, part of what he was doing was what used to be my job at Stanford Law School, which is to write funny emails to get people to come out to the uh, the mixers where everybody goes out and drinks and blows off steam from law school. And in one of his emails for uh, I think it was like the Multicultural Society like uh, a bar uh, bar hop type thing, um, he said, "Come out to the trap house," which is you know younger people slang for a place where you go to buy drugs. Um, and this got treated as if he had done something very intentional, very nasty, all the while administrators saying intent doesn't matter. Uh, it's the harm that his words caused. And and the scariest part to me is that, yes, there's an administrator at Yale who I, I at least more and I think more than one who really is, in my opinion, out of control. But even the student groups were saying, well, they didn't consider the pain that this caused to all of the students. And I was like, wait, what? Like, the, how did this cause students pain if they understood that he's using slang caused this? And how so, so how hot and heavy I think these uh, these ideological assumptions go and how closely they are now tied to ideas of whether or not you're a kind, compassionate or decent person um, has also glommed on to the fact that these are also very nasty, competitive environments um, where people can be outright ruthless. And you end up in a situation where suddenly they're throwing the book at someone for using slang in an email. Email. So, Greg, let me ask you a question. Uh, you know, it, 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 when you're when you're going through, and even some of these cases we've been talking about now on the show, but you know, there's plenty more in the in the article. Um, I, 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 for example, sort of start inverting it in my head and try and think of you know the case of someone that, given the atmosphere as you describe it on campus right now, they should have been gone like a long time yeah. ago, and yet they managed to. To sort of persist, you know, the the first person that popped in my head is is Harvey Mansfield at Harvard. Now, I mean, <laughs> they have yeah. tried to get him so many times. Well, though. so so that's the question. So what what how has Harvey managed to stay on? And like, are there any lessons there about how we can structure, you know, looking forward, looking ahead? How would someone like Harvey, who after all, let's not forget, wrote a book called Manliness, manhood, manliness, <laughs> yeah. manliness, uh, you know, and I mean, 
you know, he teaches, he's a, he's a proper East Coast Straussian, teaches all sorts of uncomfortable things about, about Machiavelli and, and you know, uh, uh, ideas about the American founding and the rest of that, that I, I'm sure, like, at, at best, <laughs> triggers a bunch of people. Um, yeah. You know, so, so I, I don't know, you know, you don't have to talk about Harvey. I don't, I've never met Harvey myself personally. Is it just his demeanor? I've seen him sort of give talks. He seems like a very soft-spoken, nice guy. Like, what's... What is it that 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 uh, you know allows some for some people, professors yeah, to survive and others yeah, not? Yeah, um, that's that is a good question, and it's important to keep in mind how few Harvey Mansfields there are <laughs> at, right. at, at Harvard. One thing that I was even surprised to find out that according to um, uh, you know Har- Harvard's own data, only about three percent of faculty uh, self describe as either somewhat conservative or very conservative. Only three percent. So mm-hmm. the, so there already are are far fewer conservatives to begin with. How do the conservatives who are there survive? Well, I think in part because tenure is legally quite strong, which is one of the reasons why it's so remarkable that 27 tenured professors have been fired. That doesn't happen as often at the elite schools. And I think that's at least in part because elite schools understand that they could be losing millions if they try to um, if they try to fire a tenured professor. Um, the some of the ways that that um, they stay on in some cases the most cynical reason, but is often true, is that a lot of donors um, to universities are not very left to center or left to center at all, and they and they will give to. Um, you know, Princeton because they have Robbie George there, for example, and they'll give to Harvard because they're very happy that, you know, Harvey Mansfield is still there. And I think that in some cases, it almost like misrepresents um, what universities are really like when they will give to, you know, Stanford uh, because they have the Hoover Institution. But what they don't seem to get is that the Hoover Institution, when I was in law school, I didn't know what was in that building. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but like it's the center of campus. We have that big tower that's the Hoover Tower that's on all, all like every piece that you'll see about Stanford has the picture of a Hoover Tower. I did not know that there was a conservative um, th- sort of think tank in the middle of campus because people just didn't want to w- want to talk about it. So I think to a degree, um, there's there are cynical reasons that that administrators keep them there because it helps them raise money because they can say, well, we haven't gone completely, uh, in, you know, to the dogs. Um, but the uh, but in places like Hoover, they have very little influence on on campus. And when you look at the um, the students who are coming. Uh, the, the professors who are c- coming up in the ranks, the, the viewpoint diversity there is even lower. So those what those few conservatives that you see in some of these places, they're oftentimes um, you know older, uh, older, and, and gonna eventually have to have to retire, have to retire anyway. And then of course, I was always hesitant th- throughout my career to point out the lack of viewpoint diversity argument because we were never. I think it was partially because David Horowitz used to make that argument, and we didn't want to be the mm. viewpoint diversity pr- uh, people. But the more I looked into the history of attempts to to shut down free speech, the more I saw that there was always this, oh, that's not a problem, that's going to go away, and uh, that that um that that's not a problem. We actually have you know great viewpoint diversity um, among our professors, and then actually, if you look at it over time, that's, that's just simply not true. And one other reason why I think like a viewpoint diversity is important for the audience to understand, Harvard has. Uh, only 3% of their professors are conservative. Um, and at the same time, they managed to find a dozen examples of professors who needed to be fired at that school, many of whom actually were. 
Um, so the fact that you can still find dissenters in places where um, when you poll professors, they, they um, at least there haven't been great polling done on this, but even in 2010, 2011, when the AECU, the American Asso uh, Association of College and University Pre Presidents, did a survey, uh, and I think they surveyed about 7,000 professors, uh, only about 16.7% of them said um, that they were very confident that they that it was, quote unquote, and this is the quote, safe to hold unpopular points of view on campus. Mm. A very weak formulation of the sentence. And already back then, they were saying that they were, uh, they, they were scared. And the fact that you do have this environment where you have bias-related incident programs, you have speech codes, you have administrators, you have lots of things that can be done to professors to get them to um, uh, shut up that are well short of bringing them up on formal charges. And we still have, you know, 505 professors targeted for being fired at schools across the country. So if three, the 3% number is incredible that, um, you know, in Harvard, only 3% self-identify as conservative, if that's the case, then where does viewpoint diversity fit into these committees, diversity, the um, equity and inclusion DEI programs that now the vast majority of universities have centers that are devoted to increasing diversity and inclusion, and they mm -hmm. organize programs around that. And we can talk a little bit more in a bit about what that actually entails, because I think that is worth some concern as well. But just, but if diversity is part of their title, do mm -hmm. they have any interest in increasing viewpoint diversity and making an extra effort to bring in conservative students, or I would say, I mean, perhaps that's less of an issue, but certainly when it comes to professors of, are we doing enough to try to hire professors who have different views on fundamental issues facing our society? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, assume the answer is no. Is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, short, the short answer is no. And it's partially because Diversity is understood to mean uh, racial or ethnic diversity, um, and that it's been funny watching people bring up the idea that um, you need more diversity of opinion um, and, and, and political point of view on campus get greeted by people who immediately know to say, critics who immediately know to say, oh, you're talking about affirmative action for conservatives. And meanwhile, it, the funny thing is usually these are the same complaint from people who uh, heartily endorse and, and agree with affirmative action. Um, but also, you have to remember, remind them that the justification for affirmative action um, and for its success in the courts has largely been that, that um, racial and ethnic diversity is a proxy for um, intellectual diversity. The and essentially, by having people who, who come from different racial ethnic backgrounds, it's a sort of indirect way of getting at greater viewpoint diversity. And then when people go, try to get at viewpoint diversity directly, that, that's, that's very uh, quickly derided. Um, and you look at the way we've, we've developed all of these rules around how you argue on campus. One thing that I have seen pretty consistently is if you're, um, you know, like a, a black conservative, uh, that, that, that very quickly people will basically try to take um, your racial identity rhetorically away from you um, as if th that uh, being uh, of a different racial ethnic background, you have to have the following um, uh, political assumptions. Oh, hmm. I, 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 well, go ahead, maybe, <laughs> No, go ahead. No, 
I'm just it's it's frustrating listening to this. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, believe me. And like and, and the thing is like I I'm a I, I'm I'm a democrat. Like I I'm politically left to center. Most of my organization, most of the people we employ uh, are and I to a degree hate that that I have to say that because you sh- I feel like people should take what I'm saying um, seriously, regardless of it. But I will say, I'm actually really lucky that I had my mental breakdown about this stuff in 2007. Mm. But coddling the American mind, if you don't, you don't know the story behind it, I got into a suicidal depression when I became um, president of FIRE, partially partially uh, because the culture war stuff is really exhausting. And even like when I was trying to date, you know, I, I dated a girl who... Um, told me at one point when I was very lonely and very sad in Philadelphia um, that, uh, you know, like, listen, I'm a I'm a First Amendment. I'm the real deal on the First Amendment. I defend Nazis. I'm certainly going to uh, going to defend Republicans. And she actually said to me that, well, I think Republicans might be worse. And I was like, oh, my Whoa. God. Um, and and that the was, Nazis. I, I I don't I'm not even going to question it because I I didn't I didn't follow up anything <laughs> after that. Um, and needless to say, the relationship didn't work out. But it it was really exhausting to be in the culture war all the time in 2007. Really alienating so much so that I got hospitalized for it. Um, the good news is that eventually led me to cognitive behavioral therapy, which led me to coddling the American mind. But I don't blame people for um, wanting to sort of turn away from this because it's exhausting. Believe me, it's exhausting. You know, it is exhausting. Um, you know, I guess maybe my coping mechanism, Shadi is sort of maybe familiar with it. And we've talked about it a little bit, uh, you know, in, in sort of roundabout ways is, is I mean, I, I in, in general, I was alluding to it earlier. I, I, what, what I really don't like is this is a self-certainty of activism. And I find that yeah. to be just something that is really toxic to me. And um, I, I, I like to go after it. Whenever I see someone being particularly smug and, and confident in some sort of set of, of precepts or values, I, I, I really like to just cut that at the knee. And so, I mean, that makes me sort of a nasty person online, I guess. But for whatever reason, I don't, I don't end up... <laughs> I have yet to be canceled, probably because I'm not I'm not uh, famous enough to be that. Which again, then sort of gets me to the you know the, the question I have for you. You alluded to it earlier. It's in your article, and I think it's worth talking about. Is we have been talking about this sort of the social justice side of things, right. but then you you gesture it on the right how this has now happened. And a couple of episodes back, we were actually uh, kicking this around. Uh, the fact that that uh, the right is ado- adopting this language of victimhood and mm-hmm. this kind of uh, mode of argumentation as well, which is such a tragedy. I mean, we were talking about it, I think, in the run-up to the uh, to the Youngkin win in Virginia here, Governor Youngkin, um, and the, the, the questions about how Republicans have been, um, you know, uh, approaching the, the whole sort of question about uh, critical race theory itself and going on, on sort of... Uh, uh, hunts about suspect texts and things like that. Not, not, yeah. not taking the position that things like critical race theory are bad because they are an activist text that is not open to having itself critiqued, but they say it itself is a, is a demon text that must be somehow thrown <laughs> out of the, of the curriculum. So I don't know. I mean, talk about that. I mean, is that, that's, sure. that's what really depresses me. You know, not so much, I have a coping mechanism to fight with activists, uh, but yeah. I don't have a co- coping mechanism when I see that, that everyone in his own way is becoming this yeah. sort of thing that, that well, I find so well, If I just jump in, I mean, 
I think part of the issue, at least this is my pessimistic conclusion, and maybe Greg, you might be able to offer something vaguely more optimistic, but I don't really think anyone believes in free speech. I mean, not to say that we're part of the special minority that does. There are some people who do. But if you look at the broader population on right and, and left, you see similar instincts. And I suspect that if conservatives represented 97 percent of Harvard's faculty, the 3 percent who were liberals would be similarly um, pressure to toe the line on a different set of issues, but with with a similar with a similar mindset mm-hmm. that dissent um, against the party line or against orthodoxy has to be stamped out. Um, and and I worry that so if if that is in fact true and people don't actually hold to the principles, then we're talking about a fundamental problem in American society that's very hard to fix. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I, I think that I think you hit the nail on the head that this is a fundamental problem in American society that's very hard to fix. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I am very worried about the next um, the next ten years. When it comes to the um, uh, the lack of popularity of the concept of freedom of speech, um, that's also historically accurate. Um, now, I, I did I did enjoy David Graeber's book, um, uh, the, the Beginning of Everything, even though the, the fact that he decides that the fact that people share has to be labeled as communism as um, I, I thought that was a kind of insensitive term to use, uh, you know, for those of us whose families had to flee communists, for example. Mm. But I did think there was interesting stuff about representative, um, small representative um, societies uh, or even larger scale ones probably uh, existed to a greater extent that we think it wasn't just, you know, ancient Greece. It wasn't just Athens that there was probably more um, places where there, where there were, you know, sort of proto democratic institutions or at least collaborative collaborative ones, um, which would mean that that free speech was kind of more common before kingdoms and empires and all that kind of stuff. But given most of our historical time is about kingdoms and empires for a good chunk of it, um, freedom of speech isn't something you'd expect people to really advocate until there was a possibility that you could actually reach people on a large scale. And the good news there is that almost as soon as the printing press was invented, you start having people rising up defending free speech as an idea and as an ideal. Um, and so there is that instinct that, you know, that, that's the liberty oppression matrix that Jonathan Haidt talks about, that essentially that does seem to be a recurrent history, a part of history. So some minimal amount of freedom of speech, at least the freedom of speech that you need to maintain sort of democratic institutions, um, isn't as controversial um, as we might as we might fear in some ways. Um but I do think that uh, we were very lucky to grow up at a time, um, or at least uh, at, at, um, your co-host. Actually, no, both of you, uh, <laughs> g- g- given you're around my age, um, that uh, free speech law and free speech culture were very strong um, going, you know, 80, 80s and 90s up. The free speech law in the U.S. is still very strong. The First Amendment is very strongly interpreted. It's It didn't used to be like this um, up before the 1950s and definitely before the 1920s that for, that the First Amendment was strongly interpreted. And free speech culture, the idea that, you know, being on the left side of the spectrum meant that your least compromising position was always freedom of speech is, is of paramount importance, was something that we were lucky enough to be able to take for granted. 
Um, that's really started to erode uh, since about 2005 globally and on campus really dramatically, I think, uh, since since 2014. And that's honestly, that's why I call my blog the eternally radical idea, because I always like to point out that, um, you know, in every generation, people stand up to oppose freedom of speech and anything that's opposed at every moment in human history by at least somebody is a radical idea. And to get away from the idea that it's either conservative or liberal. But did you want me to talk about the the chunk on on CRT laws? Yeah, I think that would be really good. Okay, so yeah, the CRT. Uh, you know, talk about a, a, a maddening debate that you, you barely get out of the gate before someone's it's saying, um, "Oh, well, the CRT isn't taught you know anywhere because Derek Bell isn't taught in K through twelve. And it's like, I feel like I just as far as shorthand that I want to contribute, all they mean by C, all 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 the Chris Rufos mean by um, CRT is essentially. Uh, aggressive campus style identity politics yeah. like it, it it's just it's it's that simple but there's been attempts by lawmakers all over the country um to pass uh the, these anti CRT anti CRT laws getting at this stuff now i did a 5000 word piece on on these laws because when you apply them to K through 12, whether or not they're constitutional or legal becomes a lot more complicated because state legislatures are uh, a big part of the decision-making process about what's get, what gets taught. So it's not ne- necessarily the case that these things are necessarily unconstitutional. They still may be a bad idea. But when it comes to higher education, it's not close. And Fired, my organization, has been very loud about this. Like These are unconstitutional as applied to, to, to higher education. Um, but Connor Frieserdorf um, did something um, that that I, I'm actually kind of jealous of him for making this point first, is that just as I mentioned before, Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, a lot of these intellectuals um, who were who essentially founded CRT, their very first public um, uh, piece of advocacy was clamping down on speech um, uh, and ha- passing speech codes on, on, on campuses. The uh, Republicans who are opposing CRT really took a lot of language that looked like it could have come right out of Mary Matsuda and um, Richard Delgado and passed these, you know, uh, in large, unwieldy bills all, all over the country. Um, and it leads to this kind of funny thing where the two sides have switched positions that essentially, um, you know, the Republicans are saying they, they don't want, uh, you know, white students to feel discriminated against or alienated or harassed on the basis of the color of their skin, which is if you read some of these CRT laws, that that's actually pretty much the way they, they the way to find it. Something that you would think in principle would be highly sympathetic to the Mary Matsudas and Richard Delgados of the world. But of course, they've switched sides and. Given at this point, you know, for the two different sides of the culture war, they just want to win. Like they, they, they want to win forever, uh, which hopefully you will never actually be uh, be achieved. And they switch positions. Uh, but I know that this doesn't mean that suddenly, you know, the people who support the kind of speech codes that existed on the left are are, are going to suddenly say, oh, I can see how these could be abused in ways that I didn't intend. Or for that matter, on the right, not, not uh, how hesitant they've been to concede that a lot of these codes are just plain unconstitutional. I mean, it just feeds into the polarization, right? I mean, that's, oh, yeah. the, that's the worst oh, God, part yeah. of it is that. Uh, as you just said, it's not it's not just that there's not going to be any reckoning. Uh, it's actually a bet on on doubling down on your tribe. Basically, it's 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 yeah. a very clear uh, move to say, 
well, you know, uh, if you're doing it, I'm doing it, and my side's just going to, like, dominate your side. It's a completely just a, a, a path to the bottom, basically. It, it, is a, it is a fun topic, though, to opine on on Twitter, because depending on the day, uh, you'll be like, oh, is this a right-winger going after me or a left-winger going after me about this? And, <laughs> exactly. and sometimes you actually really can't tell until you read the, read the bio w- w- which side is angry about, uh, at me about CRT. So that was part one. We hope you enjoyed it. Part two is for subscribers. There's a lot of good stuff uh, still to come in our conversation. You can subscribe by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. We'll also include a link in the show notes. And thanks for listening.